Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to have with us for today's Profiles broadcast, Joe Tucker. Joe is a longtime friend of the National Committee, having been selected almost 20 years ago now. No, sorry, uh, 2005, six. 13 years ago. Okay. Long time ago. Joe is a longtime friend of the National Committee, having been selected for the first cohort of our Public Intellectuals Program, which brings together the some of the best and brightest of the younger generation of China specialists. Most of them tend to be academics in history and political science and sociology and anthropology. Joe was the outlier in the group in that he was a medical doctor. He was also among the youngest, if not the youngest, of anyone who at the time or even now has been part of the program. And it's just such a, a pleasure and, in fact, a vindication of having selected you to have seen how far Joe has gone in his field and all the really interesting and creative and innovative work that he has brought to his chosen profession of being a medical doctor, but one who engages not just in a doctor's office, but who engages at both a personal level and at a community level. And we're going to hear, I hope, this afternoon from Joe about various aspects of his work that covers this broad range of his interactions with people who might be seen as his patients or his clients or his community. So Joe has three titles, wears sort of three different hats. He's an associate professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hills and in that university's School of Medicine. He is also an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And then he's the chairman of an organization in China based in Guangdong called the Social Enterprise to Spur Health, Tsai Si in Chinese, if I have the tones right. And what I'd like to know or hear from you, Joe, is these three different jobs, what do they have in common? Do you do different things at each, or have you crafted a way to make what you do in your life very well-rounded and well-integrated? Thanks, Jan. And it's great to be here as part of, um, of this podcast and to come back to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. The PIP program for me was a real pleasure to be a part of, and medicine can be so siloed to branch out and meet um, China-focused political scientists, sociologists, was really eye-opening for me. And so in terms of what I do today as a, an infectious disease physician and a researcher, most of what I do at, at all of these three sort of uh, organizations focuses around crowdsourcing contests. And crowdsourcing here is having a group solve a problem and then sharing that solution with the public. And so we're interested in implementing these contests and evaluating these contests, seeing how they can be used to improve health in a bunch of different settings. So that's kind of the overall theme. And in terms of sort of academic life, there's a fair amount of flexibility uh, in terms of choosing projects that um, are interesting and 
and that have legs and where there's strong mutual interest, both from the U.S. side as well as from the China side. So I'm going to assume that our listening audience is a pretty hip group and we understand, for the most part, at least in general, what crowdsourcing is and how it works. But you might want to elaborate a little bit on how what you do might be a part of the general wave of crowdsourcing or different. But first, I want to know, how did you come to this? When did you first get interested in it? Because I, when we selected you for PIP, that certainly wasn't part of your worldview at the time. So what was it that made you suddenly glom onto this to make it such an important and central part of all you do now? It was about five years ago that the Global Fund and many other international funders were leaving China. China was too rich, and um, yet there were many community-based HIV testing projects that were doing really important work. And so given that this, there was a gap, um, folks needed to think about new models, new ways of delivering HIV testing and other sexual health services ways that could be more sustainable and um, leverage the strengths of the Pearl River Delta. And really the Pearl River Delta, it's such a hub for entrepreneurship and innovation. We wanted to bring in that entrepreneurial spirit, that innovative spirit into this new group that we formed called SESH. So five years ago, it was a group of um, community discussions in Hong Kong and Guangzhou with public health leaders, with physicians, with people living with HIV, businessmen, thinking about how can we draw on some of the strengths of the region and propose a new way of, of doing things. And, and so crowdsourcing, you're right, and I should have said a little bit more before, crowdsourcing is it's a new idea for many, and it's still often and sort of easy to confuse. And what we're talking about when we talk about crowdsourcing contests, it's not crowdfunding, and it's really not... Wikipedia is an example of sort of the general concept, but what we're talking about is a more specific form of a challenge contest. And challenge contests typically involve um, an open solicitation. So we send out an open call and say, send us a one minute video promoting HIV testing. And then we do promotion of this open contest through social media, in-person events, and then we evaluate these videos based on pre-specified criteria. And then we choose some finalists and then share the best videos with the local community and with the public. So that's kind of um, challenge contests in a nutshell. And they've been used increasingly in public health and medicine. Um, and there's this building evidence base provides a foundation for new programs and new ways of thinking about HIV testing. So during these sessions that you had in Hong Kong with a variety of people from all walks of life, as one is fond to say in China, um, it was an idea that someone there had that says, hey, you know, I've heard about crowdsourcing for XYZ. Maybe we could turn this into a focus on health or somebody already knew of a program that was using, and, and then where did the, crowdsourcing is one thing, challenge contests is another. What was the leap? How, where did that come from? It's a great question. And initially, the sort of lineage of crowdsourcing, it's the idea itself is much more from the private sector. So there are a number of different companies that have used crowdsourcing 
as, an, as a tool to come up with new ideas where a company within the company would say, let's have an open contest to, um, to have people within our, our community or even outside of it come up with new solutions. And, um, and there, there are a couple of examples from crowdsourcing from looking at identifying gold, the location of, of gold mines that a company was entirely founded on this. Um, there was a, an early crowdsourcing contest that um, there was a famous crowdsourcing contest in England in 1906 where um, 700 people at a county fair guessed the weight of an ox and it turned out that the median guess of these 700 people was accurate to within 2% of the actual weight of the ox. Um, so there have been a bunch of private sector um, places where crowdsourcing has been used and um, but there haven't been as many places where it's been focused on a public creating a public good or sort of public innovation and part of our thinking was that um, in terms of the HIV epidemic if you look at who's affected in Guangdong you look at the young gay men who are the young gay men like if, if and when I see them as patients, these aren't, you know, if if you take them in their social lives, who are they? They're graphic designers. They're CEOs. They're um, they bring a body of skills and knowledge and expertise that was really totally divorced and absent in the HIV response, and it was our putting this together that. Why can't, um, and part of this is also the sensitivity in the Chinese context, that obviously someone who's gay wouldn't want to publicly say, oh, I'm gay and I'm creating this. But to give people, young people, gay men, a way to make a contribution to the community that wouldn't risk their being disclosed as gay in the local culture, mm -hmm. that there was a disconnect there that was hindering the response. So if we could put together an open contest that would allow the public, allow a diverse group to contribute, then we could draw on the unique strengths and talents of the community and really create something powerful that could be more um, useful for HIV testing and other sort of health purposes. That's interesting. Let me take you back earlier because Again, when you first came to the National Committee's attention, you were a recent MD, and you were working on sexually transmitted diseases in China. How did that even happen? What made you as a, what made you want to be a doctor? What made you then want to focus on sexually transmitted diseases? And then what made you want to do that in a Chinese context as opposed to the US or Uganda or London? That's a great question. Now I got to go way, way back. So it was in college. I really found, I fell in love with China first. My first love was really China. And I knew that I wanted to do work in China. I took Mandarin at Swarthmore. I just loved it. I felt like this was um, a, a fantastic window into a different culture. And then um, it was really an undergraduate um, experience that um, I spent uh, a couple weeks in Shandong province in 1999 and um, and it seemed like 
you know, at that point, HIV was well off the radar. It was Elizabeth Rosenthal's New York Times reporting that really shined a light on a totally hidden epidemic. And for me, I thought, gosh, here's an opportunity for a foreigner to make a discreet contribution. So it was as an undergraduate that I went, um, I had read an edited volume where um, Professor Gail Henderson at UNC wrote about her, some field work in Zoping. And so Gail, I said to, I found Gail and I said, oh, you know, this is, uh, this is what I wanna do. And so she referred me to her husband, um, Mike Cohen, who's the chief of infectious diseases at UNC. Um, and both of them in 1979 were among the first uh, foreign physicians in the sort of post-reform period to do medical research in China. And this was, you know, obviously there was no um, U.S. embassy in China. They had a letter from um, the president from, you know, saying these are not spies. And so Mike and Gail, um, you know, over the many years had been really engaged in China research and STDs and um, so I found Mike and I said, I want to do HIV research in China. And Mike said, you've got no public health training, no medical training, and your Mandarin is really poor. And he was basically right on all three fronts. But, um, but he was um, just uh, an amazing mentor. And over the last 19 years, it's really, he, he's, I just saw him yesterday and um, he remains my boss and mentor and he and, and Professor Henderson have been really wonderful role models and um, it makes all the difference in sort of China careers to have um, China hands who um, can help you to, to think about the big picture and, um, and think about the appropriate cultural context. So, so I ended up going to UNC for medical school and then to um, UCSF in San Francisco where I could have a Mandarin speaking patient panel and get more HIV experience for residency and then for fellowship um, I went to Harvard where I could uh, do a master's in East Asian studies at um, as part of um, learning more about China and really getting sort of more Mandarin um, you know, and then later I did a PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So slowly, or over many, many years, I did get the skills that I needed to to do to sort of make make a contribution in the field. But I think it was really mentorship and having fantastic mentors, and and not just in the U.S. but in China too, really benefiting from Dr. Chen at the National STD Control Center in Nanjing and. And now, um, Professor Yang Bin at the Guangdong Provincial STD Control Center. Um, it's been a great, it's been an amazing sort of journey. And, and really, um, I mean, I feel like we've done a lot, but we're really at the very beginning. I'm, I'm really optimistic about the future of this field. And I feel like there's a lot of room for US-China collaboration around health issues. So let's start when you first went to China, which would have been 2000 and what? Or 1999. 1999, okay. So it was a very different world then, and, and world in general, not just China and the United States. But can you talk a little bit about what it was like for a young American health specialist to go over to China in tr and working on the sensitive subject that you had chosen? 
Um, what was the access like? Did you feel that you were able, I assume you felt you were able to make progress because you kept coming back and doing more, unless you <laughs> have a very stubborn, persistent personality, which could be true as well. But I'd like you to talk about what it was like then and then how it's changed. I know that it is quite different today. And were, was that a slow, gradual change, or were there certain hurdles that suddenly were leaped and brought you quickly to a new, a new level in the relationship where you could do what you wanted to do? I think initially, um, the first time I went to China back in 1999, I benefited greatly just from the Chinese sort of guest host culture where um, any foreigner, even a very junior foreigner, was treated with great respect. And so people were very friendly and very open, and not in terms of, of um, sharing data, not in terms of, um, but I think there was a genuine concern about HIV that was shared by physicians and public health leaders and, um, and a commitment to do more. And I could feel that there was, um, there was interest in collaboration back then. And I, I think that's definitely a theme that's been consistent, that um, regard there, there's sort of political things that may, in the short term, may make things difficult for a few months or even a year. There's all sorts of things that um, complicate the relationship. But, but in a big scale over the span of you know, decades, there's a lot of, there's, there's both great Chinese interest in working with American and foreign researchers, and there's, there's great interest on the American side to, to, to do collaborative work with China, with such a large population where um, there are so many unique public health opportunities. And I think in terms of um, what's, it, I would say uh, the kind of, the level of access and kind of how the relationship um, has changed over the years, it's more been an incremental one. It's not that any single thing has been a flashpoint, really, mm -hmm. but more just um, in in kind of a Chinese way, there's not, it's more you, you test the waters, you right. go slowly, you send one student, you send two students, you send three students, you kind of, you it, it evolves and um, you know, having students, having grants that are shared, and um, gradually building trust so that um, so that it's it's um, clear that we both have shared interests that we can pursue together. And part of it's personal too. That my wife is from Beijing. I met her in the same Donway where I now work. Mm -hmm. um, my son's godfather is. Um, a physician, colleague, and friend of many years, Yang Lei Gang. So I think that also makes a big difference. That it's, um, it's a. There are lots of reasons why I always love to go back to China. Love spending time there and doing doing work there. How do you apportion your time? How much in China? How much Chapel Hill? And how much London? So right now I'm about seven months in London. About four months in. Uh, Guangzhou, about a month in Chapel Hill, and then a month in the Star Alliance Lounge. Or, um, you know, in the last 12 months, it's been sort of Sao Paulo, Vietnam, Australia, 
probably not. I mean, it's it's the same going to conferences, and it's not. It's the sort of standard sort of academic um, uh, gig, really. But I've I've been. I think um, it's it's great to have. And part of this goes back to Mike Cohen and UNC that it's really Mike sees um, value in the work that we're doing, and is confident that I'm uh, an ambassador for UNC in London. I'm an ambassador for UNC mm-hmm. in Guangzhou. That I'm. Um, and so, and similarly, like the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, their school, it's actually more common to have faculty not in London. So um, they have a huge presence in Africa, all over um, Africa. They've been doing global health work. Um, I mean, like UNC, they've, um, they have a long history of sort of global health research. So, um, so the career path is... Um, for both UNC and the London School, um, it's a fairly common path. So you've mentioned all this foreign travel you're doing, you say for conferences, but is part of your goal to take what's proven to be a very successful method in China, particularly in Guangdong and uh, Shandong, where you've been working primarily, and it seems as if this model would work very well in other countries. and. Is that a goal that you have, to get this model introduced other places where it could do as well as it's done and do as much good as it's done in China? It's a great question. And actually, when I was just talking to Mike Cohen about this the other day, he said, you know, this is how you make an academic career. You just do the same thing over and over and (laughs) over again. And I think um, we want to, we'd like, I'm interested in how this model could be used in other places. Um, but at the same time, it'll, I think it'll be adapted and what works in China may be a little bit different in Vietnam. We've done some contests in other um, settings that have been, that have also um, suggested that it might be a useful approach, but it's still early. You know, this is an early field and um, there's a lot more that we need to know about it. It is encouraging that the WHO TDR program has... What's has, TDR? TDR is a special project within the WHO that's focused on the infectious diseases of poverty. And um, generally, they focus on low- and middle-income countries. And so um, this this part of the WHO has been very interested in using these kinds of crowdsourcing contests um, as a way to solicit community input on health. And so um, we've done a couple of, of projects in collaboration with this WHO group, and um, they've invited our SESH team to be one of their hubs for social innovation. Good. Well, let me actually switch the focus, because while this crowdsourcing project is, is really interesting and opens up all sorts of things one could think about that this would be a good model for. But I know you also have done some work on a very interesting topic that was pretty hot about four or five years ago, uh, but seems to have lessened in intensity in China. And that was the issue of, as as opening and reform brought about many changes in the doctor-patient relationship and people visiting hospitals and how care was meted out. You've done a project on patient-doctor trust, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I've also, I was just, not just, maybe two years ago, in, in three years ago in Sichuan, and we went to a hospital, 
in, I guess it was in Chengdu. And the lines for the emergency room were out the door and around the block. And uh, that can make for some very disgruntled people when that's an issue. We think we have problems here with our emergency rooms. But can you talk a little bit about sort of the change in hospitals, the change in patients, or doctors' relationships to hospitals, and the change in patients' relationships to doctors and the larger institutions like hospitals? Yeah, and this was a project that really evolved as we started to hear a lot more media accounts about mm -hmm. physicians killing doctors. Mm -hmm. And this was very new to me as an American trained physician. It's very uncommon for patients to kill a doctor. And so, and, and furthermore, in the Chinese context, violence isn't that common. Mm -hmm. So this seemed to be really surprising. And, um, and so a group, um, and this was Arthur Kleinman at Harvard, Jingbao Nie at the University of Otago, and I, we started to think about this um, and thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to do some empirical work and talk to some patients, talk to some physicians, and try to, try to dig a little bit deeper here and think about what's going on with patient-physician trust. Why is it so different in China? And, but not just why is it different. We didn't want this just to be a research project, but what could we do to help restore trust? So we did a, um, some extensive qualitative research in Guangdong province, talking to physicians, patients, health administrators. Um, and then we also talked to a bunch of different fields. And I think this is the sort of, this is where the PIP program really came in handy that when we started to think, oh, okay, who's a lawyer who would know about this? Ben Liebman from Columbia, another pipper, was, um, I had just been um, uh, emailing him about something else, and he had mentioned um, when I met him in Hong Kong that he was working on medical malpractice in China. So he joined our team as the sort of um, China-focused lawyer. We had philosophers, anthropologists, um, it was a very diverse group, and we looked and combed through the data, the qualitative research data, and found that there were a whole bunch of things that were driving patient-physician mistrust, that on the patient side, that there were inequities sort of built into the system where a poor rural patient could go into an urban referral center and have their whole life savings be disappear overnight and that this was crippling financially and so there was a lot of mistrust from the patient perspective that they felt like red packets and kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies were were driving over prescription of antibiotics and diagnostics that were unnecessary and then on the and the physician side of things on the doctor side of things that a whole separate set of issues um, made many doctors mistrust patients. That, um, from a, a patient, or sorry, from a physician perspective, that um, many of these groups would be the E now groups would be family members. It wouldn't sometimes wouldn't even be the the patient themselves. That these were sort of became social movements instead of an, about an individual case. And then furthermore, there's no, the legal response system within a hospital is very underdeveloped. So 
There's not medical malpractice insurance. The whole system of checks and balances that exists in places like the United States or the UK really doesn't exist in China. So with a physician dispute, the, the kind of standard ways of resolving it are, are limited. And, um, and, and I think that's where you have to talk to lawyers, you have to talk to health policy experts mm -hmm. to get that kind of perspective. But we ended up um, having a wonderful conference at the Harvard China Center in Shanghai and um, having a couple of publications and actually just a special issue that came out this month in the Developing, Bio, the Developing World Bioethics Journal. And, um, and then also we had a very short piece in The Lancet that was um, specifically focused on what do we do now? Now that we, we have some insight about the determinants, what are practical, actionable solutions? And I think this is where the the workshop and the sort of project um, had at least some small impact is that some of the things that we suggested, medical education reform, were already underway. So medical education is already being um, developed in China. This is um, across the nation. Their, their uh, leadership is thinking about ways to improve and enhance medical education, make humanistic aspects, mm. um, sort of medical humanities, electives, and required components more um, robust. So, um, and then really the primary care focus. So we found the one exception, the place where there was the most trust was a pilot hospital in Shenzhen that was operated by Hong Kong University and was using sort of an HKU model that, that had longer patient visits, that had more, um, that allowed for a relationship between the patient and the doctor. Um, and I think a lot of the principles of health reform are similarly focused on primary care, family doctors, building this relationship between the patient and the doctor. So um, it, was, it was a really fascinating project and one where I think our research helped to inform um, policies in China. That's always wonderful when you have that kind of feeling that the work that you've done, albeit empirical and research-oriented, does have an effect on policy. Yeah. So. It's, and I think it's a, it's a work in progress, but it's, um, we were really delighted to see so many different officials and leaders in China asking about this work and to have, even within the our local um, community. So the Sun Yat-sen, Dean of the School of Medicine, came to our Shanghai event and has really been a fantastic champion for medical humanities. He started a whole center for medical humanities at Sun Yat-sen University. And I think um, there's really a lot to, of work to do in China around medical humanities and sort of social medicine right now. So I'm really glad to be able to end uh, this discussion on an upbeat message, and that is that despite the sort of murmurings of discontent that one hears in terms of a relationship with China and what value engagement has been over the last 50 years of the U.S. policy, of engagement toward China. It's really very heartwarming and uh, bodes well for the future to hear your discussions of how this 
intense and deep and, and long engagement that you've had over the past almost 20 years with China has not been for naught. In fact, it has benefited hundreds and thousands of people. And for that, I um, both applaud you and all your colleagues and your mentors, who I know were so important, uh, and hope that it gives encouragement to others to see that engagement indeed can be very positive and very um, have very deep influence on both cultures and both peoples. Yeah, thanks, Jan. I mean, it's the other thing, and I think this is also comes out of the sort of crowdsourcing ethos is that it is it's a team, it's a group approach, and I think that's the beauty of working in China and working in diverse places that we have teams that are diverse in terms of gender and sexuality and background and interests and um, and really our team draws on the respective strengths of the team members to come up with something that's more than the sum of its parts and um, and I'm really thankful for the national committee's um, long-term commitment to this because it's just you know the kind of day-to-day um, -day, you, you'll get newspaper headings and kind of um, pessimism and I, I don't, I don't want to um, uh, cast doubt on the pessimism because I think there is there is good reason to be very cautious and very um, careful about how we think about US-China relations and um, peer into the future but I completely agree that um, the future is bright there's a lot of work to be done and, and I think we're just at the beginning, that there's so much more ahead of us that can be done collaboratively in terms of health research and programs, and I'm excited to be a part of that. Well, Thanks, Jan. We're excited to have you be a part of that and to have you be part of the National Committee Programs. Thanks so much, Joe. My pleasure.